0: Well, as God's providence would have it um, between our Christmas series and where we are in our millennium series, we're going to be almost exclusively in the book of Isaiah for the rest of the year with just a couple of exceptions. This morning we looked at Isaiah concerning the virgin birth of Christ and in continuing to look at the Old Testament witnesses, as I've called it, to a coming millennium, we're making our way currently through Really the most classic millennium passages in Isaiah. We did Isaiah chapter 2 last time. And this evening we'd like to look at Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9, and as I mentioned this morning, it just happens to be a a classic Christmas passage as well. And so we'll get to enjoy kind of a double double message here. When we think of Isaiah chapter 9, that is precisely what we think of. We think of Christmas. It's a beloved passage of Scripture directly prophesying the birth of the Messiah to Israel. And in fact, Isaiah 9 forms a key part of the glorious Hallelujah Chorus and Handel's oratorio simply titled Messiah. But there are elements that even at first glance begin to point the reader forward past and far beyond the birth of Christ. Words like eternal Phrases like, no end, and from then on, and forevermore, and kingdom. And so right at the outset, you begin to look farther forward. And that's the intention of the text. I'd like to, first of all, just walk through the first few verses of Isaiah 9. And then we'll let the text take us from the manger of Christ all the way to the throne of Christ. Because Isaiah's prophecy concerns Isaiah's time. It concerns the time of the birth of Christ and... As so often happens in prophecy, it layers in a concern for a coming future time. So we'll focus our organization around the king since the birth of the king is the theme of Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. So I'll divide this into three parts, the entrance of the king, the people of the king, and the character of the king. And So we'll spend some time first looking at the entrance of the king. I just want to do an initial walkthrough of this text. I don't know if I've ever preached two sermons in a row that talked about King Ahaz, but we did this morning, and here he is again. King Ahaz, the king of the southern Israelite kingdom of Judah in the 8th century BC, he's refused, as we saw this morning, to come to true saving faith in God. He's already made up his mind that he's going to serve false gods. He's refused God's gracious offer to give any sign that he might ask for back in chapter 7. And because of Ahaz's disobedience and the continued covenant unfaithfulness of the people of Judah, a great time of darkness is coming at the hands of the Assyrians first, then the Babylonians, then the Greeks, and finally, the greatest darkness of all, the fact that God would be silent for 400 years. The end of chapter 8 leaves us as readers hopeless and distressed. Isaiah 8, verse 22 then they will look to the earth, and behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be banished into thick darkness. But then chapter 9 begins with this little two-letter conjunction in Hebrew, a connecting word that says something new is about to happen. There's a shift. There's a switch. It's like the darkness is suddenly flooded with light and with hope, and the hope is Messiah. Messiah. And our text here is set up very much as this high point answer to the growing darkness. Chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8 just gets darker and darker and darker. And all of a sudden, chapter 9, Messiah is coming. The Lord is coming to save and to rescue. And so the text starts big and with grand hope. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Now, Isaiah writes in earlier times, even though this hasn't happened yet from his standpoint, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. Zebulun and Naphtali, two of the tribes of Israel, they're situated in the most northern part of Israel. And so they're in the most danger. They're the most susceptible to foreign influence, the most susceptible to invasion. They were the first to suffer when Tiglath-Pileser of Assyria attacked Israel in 732 B.C. as recorded in 2 Kings 15. They were the first to be occupied by the Assyrians as a result of their rebellion and sin. And this is what would be called later the region of Galilee. This is home to many Gentiles and even in the days of Jesus Nazareth of Galilee didn't have a good reputation. This is very important to us because this is where Jesus would grow up, where he would begin his ministry in Cana of Galilee, in fact. verse 2, speak of the people who walk in darkness. What is this darkness? Well, this is spiritual darkness. This is the, the hopelessness of a nation that would never be what it once was. The Jews in Galilee, living among many Gentiles, the purity of the nation, seemingly lost forever, God hadn't spoken to them in 400 years. But now there's this sense of suddenness. There's this crashing in, particularly on Galilee, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali, and to Israel in general. And the next three verses draw on imagery from an ancient book, from the book of Judges, to illustrate the unexpectedness, the abruptness of the change. The change in fortune. All of a sudden, it just it just is... Huge, it's crashing in on them. Verse 2, The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in the land of the shadow of death. The light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall make great their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall shatter the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their taskmaster as at the battle of Midian. And so this draws on imagery from the book of Judges. In, in Judges 7, Israel has been oppressed by the Midianites But God raises up the judge Gideon to defeat them. And you recall that Gideon took 32,000 troops with him, but God was not going to defeat Midian on the basis of man's strength, but rather on the basis of God's strength. And so God reduced Gideon's forces to 300 men Gideon and his men came to the Midianite camp in the middle of the night and then they did the strangest thing. God divided them into three companies of 100 men each, each holding a torch with a jar over it in one hand and a trumpet in the other hand. I don't know about you, I'd rather have a weapon, but that's what God said to do. They surrounded the camp, they blew the trumpets, they broke the jars and so the night was shattered With the sudden noise of these shattering jars, 300 loud trumpets, and the camp suddenly illuminated by 300 bright torches. This sudden bright light. And the Midianites are so confused they start killing each other and they are running and hunted down. And by the way, whose land was saved from the Midianites by this sudden burst of light? Gideon defeated the Midianites who were occupying the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. So that imagery is drawn upon here. Verse 2, the suddenness of the light being shown. Verse 4, the sudden breaking of the burden. The yoke that a farmer puts on oxen to make them do his bidding. The staff for the shoulder used to carry a large and heavy burden for your master. The rod of his oppressor, which is the stick laid to the back of the slave. All of those forms of oppression Are broken. And in Gideon's day, Israel was oppressed by the Midianites. In Isaiah's day and beyond, Israel was oppressed by the weight of their own sin, by the weight of their own rebellion, their covenant disloyalty with God. So they continue to have this yoke, this staff, this rod. But Messiah's coming would demolish the darkness and shine brilliant light on the nation. And in verse 3, the nation would experience a, a multiplication, a resurgence of hope. And Isaiah gives these illustrations. It's like the joy of a great harvest. It's like the joy of a conquering the uh, conquering great enemy, dividing the plunder or the spoil of battle. Isaiah's point is that victory is coming. And in fact, the text builds to an even greater excitement. In verse 5, For every boot of the booted warrior in the rumbling of battle, and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire now in the near term although assyria would invade and would occupy in the days of hezekiah the son of ahaz the king of judah god would personally come as the angel of the lord and he would kill 185000 invading assyrian troops Both Isaiah 37 and 2 Kings 19 says that the city of Jerusalem the next day was surrounded with the dead bodies of the Assyrians. And so what do you do with them? What do you do with them? What do you do with their clothes? What do you do with their stuff? You burn it all. And this is exactly what's described here in verse 5. What was shaping up to be a massive battle instantly turns to peace when God intervenes. And so in verses 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, there's there's an intensity. There's a a crashing in, a a building up. Messiah is coming. He's bringing the light of salvation. He's going to bring relief from sorrow and from grief and bring with him the grace of God. Verses 3, 4, and 5, you cannot get away from this. This indicates a, a great military victory. These verses build the tension with this question. What is the great light that is coming to save Israel? Or perhaps the better question is who is the great light who is coming to save Israel? The conquering Messiah comes to save the day it's literally the equivalent literary wise of trumpets blaring. Verse 3, trumpets. Verse 4, trumpets. Verse 5, trumpets. And how will the Messiah ride in to save the day? For a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. That's not a conquering warrior, that's a baby. How odd, what a surprise. And verses three through five sounds like a conquering warrior is coming and then you get a child, a baby boy. And those two short statements, the prophecy of the birth of Messiah are loaded with potential, loaded with importance. There's a contrast expressed in the coming of one person First of all, a child is born. This is the coming of full humanity in Messiah. He's born. That's the beginning of something. Messiah would come to earth fully human. But then a son is given. The eternally God, Son of God, would come to earth in an amazing joining of God and man. Given is giving something that already exists. There's a hint of this back in Isaiah chapter 4, verse 2. In that day the branch of Yahweh will be beautiful and glorious and the fruit of the earth will be the pride and the honor of those of Israel who escape. The branch of the Lord and the fruit of the earth are parallel to one another. They both speak of Messiah. But notice the juxtaposition, the the contrast here. Messiah is the branch of the Lord and the fruit of the earth. He comes from heaven and He comes from earth. Or to put it in theological terms, He is God and He is man. In chapter 4 and now in chapter 9, with the knowledge that a child is born, the full humanity of Messiah, and the son is given, the coming down of the full deity of God himself, with further revelation of Scripture, this makes sense to us. That our Lord would be the child of Mary, truly a human being, and at the same time, truly the son of God. Or to put it this way, when God came to earth, He didn't subtract deity from Himself in order to be human. He added human nature to Himself. He came to earth as a man with a human body, a human mind, and human emotions. It was necessary. It was vital. It was important for Messiah to be both God and man. Jesus would be our representative. He would perfectly obey God in all the ways that we failed Him jesus lived a perfect human life we couldn't live because of our sin he would be the perfect substitute sacrifice for the wages of sin and only a sinless sacrifice can fully pay the ransom for my sin and for yours jesus would be the perfect mediator between god and man because he is both the perfect bridge to make our case for salvation he represents god he represents humanity Jesus would fulfill God's original purpose for mankind, which is to rule the earth. Jesus lived a life that's a perfect example for us to follow. Our entire goal as Christians is what we call Christ-likeness, to be like Him. He's the prototype of a redeemed body, a body that has died and been raised and will live forevermore. And because he lives, those who believe in him will live. He, he can be perfectly sympathetic to us as our high priest, our representative before God. There's no trial, there's no trouble, there's no tribulation we can undergo that he's not intimately familiar with as a fellow human. I, th- I don't think we can overemphasize this. Jesus will be a man forever. He will forever bridge the gap between God and man. Forever coming in between. His divine nature permanently joined to his human nature. And he lives forever, not just as the second person of the triune God, but as Jesus, the man whose mother is Mary and who is the human savior of the world. Or if I could put it this way, if you're in Christ, you will enjoy a human connection to God forever. And we have to have that. And so verses 1 through 5 have built to this, this climactic tension which suddenly surprises us with the quiet birth of a child. But now the tension and the breathtaking kind of broad themes begin to build again. When Jesus came as a baby, he grew, he ministered, he called disciples to himself and these disciples fully expected Jesus to immediately break the yoke of the burden, the staff of slavery, the rod of oppression, But what they didn't understand fully until much later is that the first enemy Christ had to conquer was sin. That He had to die a cruel death on the cross to pave the way for Him to save His people, to make them holy, to be able to be forever in the presence of a holy God. And so then Jesus ascended into heaven to advocate on our behalf as He begins building His church on earth by sending the Holy Spirit in His place And right at this moment, and we can't see it, it's imperceptible. Right at this moment, the kingdom is being built. Kingdom citizens added day by day by day. The only problem is is that they keep dying just as fast. But in heaven, they're being added up. Quietly going to heaven to be added to the number of the growing army of Christ. Verse 6 has happened just as Isaiah predicted. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. But right there, at that point, the prophecy pauses. Because the rest of verse 6 and all of verse 7 transport us now to a time far beyond the birth of Christ. A time which hasn't happened yet. And in fact, remember I said that this text has layers of fulfillment to it, as many prophecies do. We can go back and see that while verses 2-5 through do have an immediate fulfillment, even in Isaiah's day, A close examination will show future implications as well. That's the entrance of the king. And these close examinations now will lead us to look at the people of the king. And now we transport ourselves forward to the millennial kingdom. The people of the king. Verse 2 begins, the people who walk in darkness. Now, I'd like to show you that verses 2 through 5 give us information about the future of the people of God, specifically Israel, but we certainly will have many benefits ourselves in the coming kingdom. And I'd like to divide this into five benefits that the people of the king will enjoy in the coming kingdom. Five benefits. The first one we'll just call spiritual light. Spiritual light. Verse two, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in the land of the shadow of death, the light will shine on them. The darkness is a metaphor for spiritual blindness. Being unable to see God. Being out of favor with God. For being part of what Paul calls the kingdom or the authority of darkness in Colossians 1.13. To walk in darkness is to be without the light of God. It is to be unable to see God. To see the gospel. To see Christ. To see your own need. But the people will see a great light. What does that mean? It's... It's grand in scope. It's a light that shines upon the entire land. It says on the, on the nation. Zechariah 12.9 references the coming of Christ to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And it's at or around this time of Christ's coming that Zechariah makes this groundbreaking announcement about future Israel in Zechariah 12.10. And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. As a national people, even up to today, Israel continues in spiritual darkness. There's no nation of Israel today which officially acknowledges Jesus as Messiah, as God in the flesh. We're in the age that the Apostle Paul called the partial hardening of Israel. But this comes to an end when Messiah, when the Deliverer comes. Romans 11, beginning in verse 25, Paul says, For I do not want you, brothers, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. That's our age now. And so all Israel will be saved... Just as it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. I I promise you that in this particular series on the millennium that I'm calling Old Testament Witnesses, I'm trying to make this general in nature and not focused on Israel. But Israel is like the prophetic black hole that just everything is drawn to this subject. We can't get away from this. It's all consuming in the Old Testament, the coming spiritual restoration of this nation. Sometimes I wonder if I mention this so often that it becomes like background noise to you. But I want you to consider this. When was the last time that the nation of Israel to a man was completely made only of those who have a genuine internal reality of faith in God? When was the last time? Never. It's never happened. From her inception, from day one, there have always been the unfaithful mixed in with the faithful. And in most points of her history, the unfaithful far outmatch the faithful in terms of sheer numbers. Going all the way back to Israel's escape from Egypt by God's hand, from day one, there were unbelievers grumbling and without faith in God and saying, oh, let's go back to Egypt. God having to discipline them immediately. Or maybe, let's put it this way, when in world history... Has there ever been a nation made up of 100 percent regenerate people, born-again people? That has never happened, but it will. And so don't let that fact just slide over to some theological nuance that doesn't matter. The first benefit that the people of the king will enjoy in the coming kingdom, spiritual light. There's a second benefit: a growing nation, a growing nation. In verse 3, Isaiah declares that God will multiply the nation. Let me give you two reasons that this is such a glorious promise. One historical and one theological. Historically, and today certainly in full force, Jews have faced great powers who desire to eradicate them from the earth or to use the terminology that the Nazis used to use to exterminate the Jews. We can't even wrap our minds around that. But this effort will continue all the way up to the return of Christ. Zechariah 13.8 declares that under the tyranny of Antichrist, who will have broken his covenant with Israel, as indicated in Daniel 9, Zechariah 13.8 says, And it will be in all the land, declares Yahweh, that two parts in it will be cut off and breathe their last, but the third will be left in it. God goes on to say that this surviving third of Israel will be refined like fire. They will call upon the name of the Lord in repentance. Historically and into the future, Jews will continue to fight for their very existence. And so the promises that God will multiply the nation, meaning to become numerous, to become great, to increase, this is an indication of something quite new, something marvelous. Babies being born continually to the Jewish survivors of the Great Tribulation. Why is this important? Because God is a promise-keeping God. And going all the way back to ancient history, all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 28, when God made promises to Israel, if they will be faithful, Deuteronomy 28.1, now it will be if you diligently listen to the voice of Yahweh your God, being careful to do all His commandments which I am commanding you today, Yahweh your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. In Deuteronomy 28, 4, Blessed shall be the offspring of your body and the produce of your ground and the offspring of your beasts, the increase of your herd and the young of your flock. What does this mean? It means that historically Jews have been fighting just to exist. But now in this kingdom, it's going to be just babies everywhere. A glorious time of growth. Theologically, this is a great promise. Theologically, what is happening when God promises you shall multiply the nation? Theologically, what's happening is that the Abrahamic covenant is being fulfilled. God promised Abraham, your descendants will be like the stars of the sky, like the sand of the seashore. And now it's happening. The first benefit the people of the king Spiritual light, the second one, a growing nation. Here's a third benefit that the people will enjoy in the coming kingdom. We'll call this one increasing gladness. Increasing gladness. Verse 3 continues, You shall make great their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. Make great is translated in the English Standard Version as increase This is a Hebrew word with rich connotations, meaning to multiply, to increase, to grow. It's a way of showing the heightening glory of something, something that continues to to multiply. This is a word, incidentally, often applied to God, His increasing glory, His greatness. And Isaiah gives this comprehensive picture of increase, the greatening, the magnifying joy in the people of God. He gives, first of all, the picture of joy at the harvest, The joy of planting a bag full of seeds and harvesting a barn full of grain. He gives the picture of joy at conquering an enemy and receiving all the treasures of that enemy, dividing the spoil. As with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil, both of those things are things given solely by God. Both are images taken from the promises to a faithful Israel back in Deuteronomy 28. The produce of the ground being blessed 28.4, 28.4, the defeat of Israel's enemies, 28.7. And so it's all tied in together. One of my favorite scholars in the book of Isaiah, Dr. Alex Motzier, he makes an interesting observation about those two examples. He says that they're inclusive, and here's what he says. He says, quote, "...harvest belongs to the sphere of creation. Plunder or spoil in the sphere of history." The contrasting spheres express every sort of joy ever known. This fits with the all-inclusive nature of God's promises to Israel in Deuteronomy 28. Blessings in the cities, in the fields, in the family, in crops, in livestock, in your food stores, in safety. In fact, Deuteronomy 28.2 says that the blessings of God upon Israel will, and here's the word, overtake them. It's the idea that that you're running away from this tidal wave of blessing and it just overwhelms them. Overwhelmed by a tidal wave catching up to them. Now, how can this be described as great gladness or increasing gladness? I think we can understand this fairly easily just by looking at our own lives. In our lives today, we have a few areas of life which may give us some joy and some satisfaction, right? But almost all the time, those are offset by areas of life which give us grief and pain and reason to exercise prayer and patience and long-suffering. For example, you may have great kids but a rotten job. Or you may have a great job, well, we won't talk about the rotten kids, but... You may have financial blessing, but terrible health. You, you may be a specimen of health, but you, you can't make your way in this world financially. We live a life of faith because as Sylvia's dad used to say all the time, there's always something. There's always something. There's always some challenge. I, I defy you to go through a day of your life Thinking that there's no challenge to wake up tomorrow and see if you can get to the end of the day with nothing bad happening. And you say, well, I'll just stay in bed all day. Fine, that's bad, so something bad happened. Israel is looking to a day where every sphere of life family, home, work, your fields, the cities every sphere of life is blessed, it's abundant, it's joyful. It's it's overwhelming joy that just makes your heart burst. Spiritual light, growing nation, increasing gladness. There's a fourth benefit we'll call comprehensive relief. Comprehensive relief. Verse 4, For you shall shatter the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their taskmaster as at the battle of Midian. If increasing gladness brings the addition of all blessing... Then comprehensive relief brings the subtraction of all suffering. This is one of the major clues to us, by the way, that verses 2 through 5 cannot be speaking only of Isaiah's historical situation or even perhaps the return of Israel from exile in the 6th and 5th centuries BC. Because never, never since Isaiah prophesied has there been a time in Israel completely devoid of enemies, completely devoid of oppressors. That's never happened. But Isaiah goes out of his way to give a threefold declaration. The yoke of slavery is shattered, the staff on the shoulders, the, the the stick which carries great burdens is gone, and the rod of the taskmaster. And what is it that will bring about this comprehensive relief? Well, that's the fifth benefit that the people of the king will enjoy. We'll call it final peace. Final peace. Verse 5, every boot of the booted warrior and the rumbling of battle and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning, fuel for the fire. This is military victory on an unprecedented scale. And this cannot simply be speaking of the defeat of Assyria by the angel of the Lord in Hezekiah's day. Ezekiel 39 describes the final battle at the end of the Great Tribulation. And this syncs up perfectly with the return of Christ as described in Zechariah 14 and then in Revelation 19 and 20. But listen to Ezekiel's description of how people will deal with the total victory. Ezekiel 39 beginning in verse 9 says, Then those who inhabit the cities of Israel will go out and make fires with the weapons and burn them. Both shields and large shields, bows and arrows, war clubs and spears. And for seven years they will make fires of them. They will not carry wood from the field or gather firewood from the forests, For they will make fires with the weapons and they will take the spoil of those who made them into spoil and declare the plunder of those who plundered them, declares Lord Yahweh. Now, some have questioned that text. On the one hand, some say, well, that makes it obvious that that can't be speaking of a future time because now we have tanks and guns and and airplanes and all kinds of things. We're We're not down to war clubs and spears. And others say, well, it just must be symbolic since people don't fight with shields, bows, arrows, war clubs and spears anymore. I'm always very hesitant to declare that something in the Bible is symbolic or figurative when a face value interpretation is possible. I want you to consider this. By the time this final battle happens, the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, and the bowl judgments of the book of Revelation will have happened already, including world war, 25% of the population dying by violence, famine, disease, and wild beasts, a great earthquake, the sun and the moon being darkened, meteors falling to the earth, mountains and islands moving, Hail and fire mixed with blood fall into the earth one third of the earth burnt to a crisp one third of the oceans turned to blood one third of sea creatures killed one third of ocean vessels destroyed one third of fresh water poisoned, killing many the sun and the moon darkened again. demons released on the earth for five months one third of mankind killed by plagues and fire. Antichrist, murdering those who don't follow him and worship him, sores on all the people who do follow Antichrist, the entire sea becoming blood, killing all sea life, all fresh water turned to blood, the sun intensifying to scorch people with heat, then darkness over the kingdom of Antichrist, people gnawing on their own tongues because of their sore and pain, and earthquakes so bad that the islands of the earth and the mountains of the earth now sink, 100-pound hailstones falling to the earth. After all that, the great armies of the earth coming against Jerusalem, it's pretty reasonable to assume that they're down to spears and war clubs at that point. And Ezekiel says that Messiah's victory over Israel's enemies will be so final that they won't need firewood for seven years. Can you imagine Telling your five-year-old, can you go out and get some more spears and war clubs where the fire's getting a little bit low? That's final peace. Literally laying in the field of battle for years, the reminder that Messiah has brought peace to the earth. Spiritual light, growing nation, increasing gladness, comprehensive relief, final peace. Those benefits don't happen in a vacuum. There will be an efficient cause of all those benefits. We've seen the entrance of the king, the people of the king, and the cause is the character of the king. The character of the king. Verse 6, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace, on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore the zeal of Yahweh of hosts will accomplish this. I want to give you seven character qualities of this king. This is this is our savior. We want to know him and grow in the knowledge of Christ. The first character quality, total responsibility. Total responsibility The government of Israel and of the world is said to be upon his shoulders. This is a word picture for bearing the entire weight of something, of carrying something in totality. This Hebrew word translated government is used only here and in verse 7, verses 6 and 7, and it means domination or dominion. That Christ's rule will be total. What is his jurisdiction? It reaches to every city block Every country road, there is no place on earth to hide from the government of God the Son. Verse 7 says that His government will increase. It will never end. It will bring justice and righteousness to the world. What does that mean? It means that those who would try to sin will be dealt with. The world will be characterized by holiness, by righteousness. There will be no worry about jurisdiction because He is King of all the kings and Lord of all the lords. The second character quality we could call total wisdom. Total wisdom. His name will be called, meaning this will be his reputation, Wonderful Counselor. In Hebrew, wonder is a noun. saying that Christ is a wonder of a counselor. This is a word that means supernatural, out of the ordinary, spectacular. His, his wisdom is mind-bogglingly perfect. Or if I could put it this way, Our president has a cabinet of advisors. Kings have ministers and advisors. Governors have political advisory teams. Churches need a plurality or a group of elders to help one another. Higher courts have groups of judges. But the king of all the kings will require no one to advise him on how to rule. He'll require no one's advice. Our own nation languishes generation after generation because we don't elect the most qualified people. We elect the most popular or politically crafty people who then rule with such lack of wisdom that it's no wonder we're commanded in 1 Timothy 2 to pray for those in authority over us. It's the third character quality of Messiah King total power. Total power. He will be called, his name will be called Mighty God. This emphasizes the deity and the omnipotence, the all-powerful nature of the Son of God. This is exactly what David described in Psalm 24 when he described the coming king. Verse 8, Who is this King of glory? Yahweh, strong and mighty. Yahweh, mighty in battle. Now why is this important? And we pair this with total wisdom. You can have a ruler with total wisdom, but if he doesn't have total power, then it doesn't do any good. You can have somebody ultimately wise, but if he has no power, then it's, then it's pointless. Or I'll put it this way. There are many people who could do a better job than our current president, but none of them live in the White House. So it doesn't make any difference. But the one with total wisdom, who also possesses total power, is the only alternative. You, if I could put it this way, in the millennial kingdom, will never receive a letter That says, from the offices of the king, thank you for your concern about the crime in your neighborhood. At this time, we are unable to respond. Thank you again for your correspondence. You'll never get that. It's a fourth character quality, total love. Total love. His name shall be called Everlasting Father or Eternal Father. This speaks to the eternal nature of the king Jesus said that if you've seen Him, you've seen the Father in John 14.9. Now this is not to confuse God the Son with God the Father. They're not swapping roles here. This speaks of the fatherliness of Christ the King. It speaks to His care and His love of humanity. That His rule is not like all the other human politicians that we endure today primarily for their own benefit. No, He's the same God called in Psalm 68, 5, a father of the fatherless and a judge for the widows. He is the same God, Psalm one hundred three thirteen says, as a father has compassion on his children, so Yahweh has compassion on those who fear him. Listen, we have some good politicians. We have some decent rulers here and there. But here's something you never hear from them. You never hear them say, I genuinely love every single person under my care. You never hear them say that. At best, they might have a genuine care for the community as a whole, but they can't love every single person. But the everlasting Father will know every person, will love every person, cherish every person, care for every individual under his government. To our government, you're a social security number and a taxpayer. But to the everlasting Father, you will be known, you will be loved, you will be cherished, you will be cared for. There's a fifth quality, total harmony. Total harmony. His name will be called Prince of Peace. Prince isn't necessarily a royal word, although it can be used that way and certainly appropriate to do so here in this context. But it's a word that just means administrator or manager or official. In other words, Jesus isn't just given the title the Prince of Peace. No, He's the Administrator of Peace. The Manager of Peace. He's the one that makes it happen. He's the cause of peace. He will bring wholeness and and health and unity to society as a whole. He'll rule in justice and in righteousness. How magnificent a judge will He be when He knows the verdict before He's ever heard the case? You know, all throughout history, those in power... Have attempted to create their version of a healthy society. And yet it always leads down the same path. It leads to totalitarian control. It leads to demanded uniformity. It leads to government sponsored false religion of one kind or another. And it leads to the oppression of the weakest in society. Why? Because those in charge are corrupt. They're corrupt. Ultimately, a truly healthy society can only exist when the leadership is ultimately and utterly incorruptible. And because Jesus is the prince, the administrator, the facilitator of peace, as one who is sinless and perfect, then we'll enjoy total harmony in our communities. Or if I could put it this way, if you live in a gated community, the gates will be unlocked all the time. If you lock your door, the doors will be unlocked all the time. It's the sixth quality we'll call total fulfillment. Total fulfillment. By possessing and acting on all these qualities, Jesus Christ is fulfilling all aspects of God's covenant with David. From 2 Samuel 7. Jesus is on the throne of David. He's over the kingdom of David. He'll establish it, says in verse 7, meaning the beginning of the millennial kingdom. He'll uphold it, meaning from then on and forevermore, he will preserve the kingdom. The millennium is inextricably tied. It is, it is interchangeably tied with the Davidic covenant. And any attempt to spiritualize it or to say that somehow that's happening today or it's happening invisibly, in my humble opinion, that would be very offensive to King David himself. David always and only ever viewed the kingdom of God as an earthly kingdom in which he would dwell in the house of God forever. The temple in Jerusalem. And so Jesus is total fulfillment. And here's a seventh quality we'll call total commitment. Total commitment. In the final line of verse 7, we see the declaration that the zeal of Yahweh of hosts will accomplish this. Yahweh of hosts, the commander of the armies of God will accomplish this. This is the zeal of Christ himself this word for zeal, it means the heated jealousy. That Christ will remain jealous for His people. He's jealous. He's zealous. And He'll continue with a total commitment, total intensity all throughout His reign. Unlike earthly kings, unlike earthly rulers, there'll never be a time when He slouches. There'll never be a time when He gets distracted. never be a time when He gets bored or corrupt. Always, His commitment to His reign on earth will be total and complete. This is just in two verses we get his total responsibility, his total wisdom, his total power, his total love, his total harmony, his total fulfillment, his total commitment. Now, how is it that the increase of his government will never cease? How is it that this crescendo of power, as we might call it, continues on, that that his justice and his righteousness will establish his kingdom forever? Well, here's a thought. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given. What was his dominion? What was his power then? When Jesus was born, he had a few worshipers, some shepherds, a few wise men. His mother, Joseph. During his ministry, he gained a few more worshipers. They they came in droves and then. He drove most of them away with the truth of the gospel. At the time of his ascension into heaven, despite the fact that tens of thousands of people had listened to him, those fully devoted to him in Jerusalem numbered 120. In Galilee, there were 500 followers. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us this. On the day of Pentecost, 3,000 were added at the beginning of the church. In the book of Acts, we see that daily that number was added to At the great dispersion of Jewish Christians in Acts chapter 8, we see that number now increasing. Christ promised to build His church and has been adding kingdom citizens to it ever since, stocking the glorious halls of heaven with believers for 20 centuries. Someday, Christ will resurrect all the believers in glorified bodies. His program to restore His beloved nation of Israel will kick into high gear during the Great Tribulation. All of the Old Testament saints will be resurrected. In Revelation 19, Jesus Christ will gather all the resurrected of saints in in heaven. And he's pictured symbolically as wearing the crowns of every single nation on earth as his own. The certainty of his coming rule. And in fact, in two different places, he has written on him, King of kings and Lord of lords. The Lord will return to earth. Zechariah 14.9 says on that day, the Lord will be king over all the earth. Now, here's the great irony. He'll return to be king over all the earth less than five miles from the place that the only people paying any attention to him were a few shepherds and wise men. That's an increase of government. And his government shall increase. What do you do with all this? I like the old King James Version translation of Hebrews 12 too. In three words... The beginning of this verse encapsulates what our attitude toward these coming events ought to be. Where our affections must lie, where our growing attention must be drawn. In the King James, Hebrews 12, 2 begins, looking unto Jesus. Looking unto Jesus. Looking unto Jesus. Paul told Timothy, amidst all the difficulties all the complex problems that timothy was facing in the church of ephesus all the the uphill battles all the things that timothy had to deal with including his own health issues including anxiety over the fact that there were terrible elders in the church and there were good elders in the church and timothy had to figure out which was which and he had to get rid of the bad ones and put in some good ones and all the stress of the ministry and paul told timothy in second timothy 2 8 he said remember jesus remember jesus I think that's a great attitude to have toward Isaiah 9. Hebrews twelve two, looking unto Jesus. 2 Timothy 2, 8, remember Jesus. May he be foremost in our hearts and in our minds this season. Our Father, we thank you for this time, this glorious passage that reminds us of the coming of a baby and yet we see the coming of a glorious, mighty king And the two events are connected literally in the same sentence. I thank you, Lord, for those who have heard this tonight. I pray that our hearts are thrilled with the the truths of Christ, the truths of what we will experience as the people of God. We thank you that Christ came to earth as a child. We thank you that he is coming again as a conquering warrior and that we will be with him. May we continue looking unto Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.